welcome back to the second act of my favorite flop. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back, kids. Oh, my goodness. Did you have a good intermission? I bet you did because you got some ice cream. You got some cookies. You had a couple of our flop tails. I had several flop tails, but yes, continue. And you got to hear our amazing interview with the star. I mean, that I think was probably the best part of intermission. We are if you haven't checked that out, please go to our social media right now because the one and only Julia Murney literally came by to talk about chess and other things with us. And I am so proud of Christina because that's like one of her idols. And she held her cool so incredibly well, I think. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the first episode of Act Two of My Favorite Flop. Yes. So I'm assuming your butts are in the seats. But if they're not, please come back from the restroom and take your seat as we about to begin Act Two. And normally there's like a big overture that's playing or on track. On track. Goodness, Bobby. Sometimes on tracks are better. Is that than too long things. of an intermission for you? It was a big break. We took two months off. I, we did. Now, we want to state that uh, we were actually in the room together. This is so weird. I'm physically watching Christina. Christina's literally sitting in front of me. This is so amazing. Yeah. There's like a glow in your eyes, Bobby. It's exciting. Like, there's a glow. It might be from the lamp above our heads. It's totally the lamp. It's not your eyes. Um, <laughs> okay. Bobby, what have you been listening to on your intermission? Well, I've been listening to a lot of things uh, because even though the world has begun to open up, there's still a lot of downtime at home, I feel. But the one that I prepared specifically for this episode, I tried to stay on brand with the composer we're celebrating. So I listened and watched one of my favorite childhood movies. It's a musical, kind of, sort of, called The Worst Witch. Oh, you are so confused right now. <laughs> I do not know this. So The Worst Witch is a technically a series of British books that J.K. Rowling may or may not have stolen and created Harry Potter from. But <laughs> in the 1980s, uh, HBO adapted it into a made-for-television musical starring Feruza Balk, who, if you've ever seen a Return to Oz, she's Dorothy. Yeah. Also in The Craft, she is Nancy, so it's a big right. range there. Okay. This was like her stepping stone from Dorothy to Nancy. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Um... It stars Charlotte Ray from The Facts of Life. Uh, it stars Diana Rigg. And How have I not seen this? Tim Curry is the Grand Wizard. How have I not seen this? I don't this? know. <laughs> the All composer right. of this week's episode, which I'm going to give you now. This is like our one little like clue. Charles Strauss right. wrote songs for the movie. I Calling the movie a musical is a really generous term because there are maybe three or four songs in the entire film. But... Uh, it is a guilty pleasure from my childhood. And this is not the HBO of HBO Max. That's what they call it now, right? Yeah, I think Now that. HBO. Okay. Um, this is HBO of the 80s. And this is green screen <laughs> magic, really low budget. You're going you're gonna to need to watch this, Christina. I, yeah, apparently. And I'm going to have to do this. Charlotte Ray plays two people. <laughs> In the movie? She's herself and an evil twin. Amazing. Adding to my listening list. You're about to take a 
dive. I am about to take a dive. So on that note, Christina, what have you been listening to? So I decided to revisit a show that meant a lot to me when I saw it on Broadway. But I went back and revisited Come From Away. Ooh. Yes. Um, Come From Away, in a lot of ways, breaks a lot of rules in musical theater. It's a one act that was successful on Broadway, is coming back now after the shutdown. I mean, it's a massive success and has been all over the world. So when I got to go see it, we literally we got off a plane and we were like, we need to go see this show because everyone's talking about it. And so we met a friend at the theater from the airport and we're like, what do you have left? They're like standing room. And I was like, "Okay, it's a one act. Fine, I'll do it. I'll do standing room. So we show up, we've got our backpacks, they, they go at our feet, right? And we're standing in the back, the right. place is packed. All standing room is also sold out, which is crazy. Right. So we're sitting there and we're watching it. And within the first 10 minutes, I was sobbing, like uncontrollably sobbing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> because it was so beautifully done. Also, you're watching a bunch of actors on stage. I mean... We talk about diversity on stage, and that's actually something we're going to be talking about tonight with our show. But when you talk about diversity on stage, it's more than just colors of skin. It's acting types. It's sizes. Mm -hmm. It's people who you wouldn't normally see in a leading role in a leading role. Um, And this show is actually really a true ensemble piece to the nth degree. (laughs) And watching that staging and how... It's minimalist. It's it's like being back in college where all you have is a couple of cabaret chairs and maybe a box or two. And they create an entire world. It is so meaningful and so beautiful and written. It's it changed the way I looked at theater. Right. And so for me, that is it's one of the best experiences I've ever had. Do you want to know an awful secret? Oh, no. I have never seen the show. And I've never listened to the cast album. What? I know. Okay, now that's your homework. You I have to go. I will say this, though. I had listened to the cast album a bit before I saw the show, and I right. didn't really understand it. It is one of those shows that it is an experience to watch. Okay. Because it is sung through. There, are, There isn't really a book, mm-hmm. and it's a one act, which is very unusual for right. musical theater, especially main stage Broadway musical theater. and watching it is so beautiful i'm talking about actors playing multiple roles most of the actors play multiple roles i don't think anyone sticks with one character the entire time the entire ensemble switches and it's with simple like costume additions or costume takeoffs oh wow maybe a slight change in their dialogue no i need it was one of those things it was such a big hit when i was in new york city That it was like, when it first came out, I couldn't get tickets. I couldn't get in to see it. And then everyone I know had seen it by the point that it was easier to get tickets to. And I was like, "Uh, not that I didn't go to the theater alone. I definitely have done that. It's just not something that I got to. And I had heard it was an experience you needed to watch live. And so it's one of those reasons. I know the Welcome to the Rock, obviously. (laughs) But um, as far as the other songs go, it's, it's still a mystery to me, which is shocking because I know all the things, but I don't know Come From Away, which is a big, fat hit show on Broadway. So, And uh, this one did it right. No, well, I you look, I love that you chose that one tonight. But I think even larger of, of what it represented as far as diversity on stage, Come From Away is about 9-11. Like, 
for years, it was kind of this, I wouldn't say it's a joke because that's awful to say, but there was rumblings. Do you think they'll ever make a 9-11 musical work? You know, big tragedies, big tragic stories can make really great musicals. Blame is. Yeah, <laughs> we both said that at the same time. Uh, Get out of my head, Bobby. So it was one of those things that was just talked about and they did it. And the show that we're talking about tonight is a very complicated subject matter. Yes. Um, and Come From Away was very successful at adapting their complicated subject matter. But this is my favorite flop. The show we're talking <laughs> about tonight was not quite as successful. So, Christina, should we jump in and tell them what the show is? Because we didn't do clues for this one. We did. I mean, that would be really drawn out over those two months. Uh, so, no, tonight we're just going to jump in and tell you what this Broadway musical is. Drum roll, please. A Broadway, a Broadway musical. musical. Yes, that is the name of the show. No, seriously, it's literally called a Broadway musical, which is so much fun. Oh my gosh. So, Christina, I don't think many of our listeners probably know this show. And no. I'll just give everyone a hint as to why it played one night on Broadway, <laughs> closed on opening night. So, uh, no official cast album. It's kind of a mystery. So for our diehard fans, okay, you guys can just sit down for a moment. Christina, I think you should give everybody the synopsis of what this little show is about. Yes. So at its root, it's a show about the trials and tribulations of putting on a Broadway musical. Cool. Mm -hmm. We've had similar things like that before. Makes sense. However, it is a lot darker than that. This timid young playwright writes a serious play about an aging black basketball star. He meets a sleazy white producer who wants to produce it, but only he wants to turn it into a glitzy, cheesy musical called Sneakers. Yes, that's that's real. That is real. Um, so the sleazy white Broadway producer sees dollar signs when it comes to an in quotes black musical. So he convinces a black singer to join him on the journey of creating this musical Sneakers and drama ensues. Uh, the show was inspired by the real life experience of Charles Strauss, the composer and the lyricist Lee Adams, when they a couple years earlier had created the musical on Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr., it is meant to be a commentary piece on the appropriation and marginalizing of communities uh, to further the white man. But in reality, it is a show about a black show being produced by a white man that was produced by a white man and written by a white man. And it did bill itself as a musical comedy. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. There is a lot. No, I want to tell all of our listeners, this musical premiered on Broadway in 1978. And I think it's interesting to show that these were conversations that clearly were going on in our community in the 1970s. And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone listening that these are conversations that are still going on in our community today. Yes. Uh, these are issues and stories that sadly haven't progressed much in the last 40 years. Nope. So it's interesting to see this musical exist, I think, coming at that time. It is interesting to me. I mean, it's also really sad delving into the Golden Boy musical right. um, with Sammy Davis Jr. And, and 
which also was not a great success. Um, and I have a lot of admiration for Charles Strauss and Lee Adams wanting to tell that story. Right. Right. Having the bravery to say, we don't care that you're not going to want to hear the truth, but here's the truth. Unfortunately, that truth really seemed to get watered down in this show. Yeah. So Charles Strauss, composer of things like Bye Bye Birdie and Annie and The Worst Witch, which y'all need to go <laughs> do that. Uh, but other things, he actually, he's going to, I, I'm actually shocked we haven't done a Charles Strauss musical yet on this podcast. That's a fair point. Because he is a person who has written a lot of big hit shows and he's written a lot of pop shows. And um, I was reading in Not Since Carrie by Ken Mandelbaum um, that, you know, some Broadway composers, once you kind of hit your stride of, of a couple flops, a lot of them throw their towel in the game and they're like, you know what? It might be time to call it quits. Uh, I think when this had premiered, I had read this was his sixth Broadway flop in a row. Wow. That's you a know, lot. That's a lot. And that's persistence. That is persistence. And, and he wrote more flops after this. So I, this is someone who wrote for the theater many decades, many shows with many different collaborators, yeah. not only with Lee Adams, who he wrote Bye Bye Birdie with, but Martin Charnin, who he wrote Annie with, Stephen Schwartz, who he wrote Rags with, who that might be an episode of this it podcast one day. That's a good show. Um, yeah, but these are the people who wrote Bye Bye Birdie. And then William F. Brown, who wrote the book, he had written The Wiz, which was one of the biggest hits on Broadway when this show happened right yeah so uh, this this was written by, by and i should also just because it's a part of the conversation tonight william f brown is also a white man who wrote the whiz which was news to me yes so where do we go next this show is inspired by charles strauss and lee adams experience working on golden boy which was essentially a white producer who wanted to musicalize Clifford Odette's classic legendary play. Yeah. Now, Clifford Odette's is Caucasian. Yes. Um, and wrote the play about a Caucasian working class immigrant boxer. Yes. Yes. Just making sure I rememberize all these things. Uh, <laughs> but they conceived it as a big, glitzy, African-American musical vehicle for Sammy Davis Jr. Obviously, the composing team had opinions about that process. Uh, yes. The show was not a massive hit, but I don't know if it's officially considered one of their flops. I think Sammy Davis did sell tickets. Part of the crux is that it was a vehicle for Sammy Davis, as opposed to trying to write the best musical version of Golden Boy they could. Right. They wrote a vehicle for Sammy Davis Jr., right? Right. Um, I think the next place we go is the structure of the show. Okay. Because it is a little confusing, and the the information out there is pretty sparse, but... Through watching um, a few different things on YouTube of concerts that have been done with this show and the music, um, as well as watching the reviews that came out at the time, um, I was able to like put together a more in-depth structure, uh, okay. which also was slightly problematic. So the focus character of the show is the Broadway producer. The character's name is Eddie Ball. And so the show, and then you also have the young black writer, right. right? The playwright is James. And the vocalist who they're trying to get to be the star of Sneakers 
is Richie. And based on the synopsis, you would think that James, the writer, is going to be your focus character. It's going to be who the audience attaches to and wants to win. And then Eddie Ball is just like Max Bialystok yelling at you. When we jumped in, that's and even I think I may have been the one to suggest this like, hey, because we were talking about shows that closed on opening night. And I was like, here's this one. It's actually kind of relevant. I assume that's what the musical was about from what I had known, that it was this story of this young up and coming African-American writer whose musical gets taken and turned into something else by this white producer. Yeah. And I assumed he was our hero. But lo and behold, he is not. No, we are rooting for Eddie Ball. Yes. Which seems very contradictory to the story that they were trying to tell. Yes. What's interesting about the structure of this show is that James, the writer, does not get to sing until the finale. And I mean the finale of Act Two. So the last moment of the show is when we hear James sing for the first time. For the first time. And it's a big plot point that is, I think, still super controversial. But in a post-Lin-Manuel world, it actually makes a little bit more sense now. But uh, I don't know if it maybe rang as true in 1978 as it might. Should we tell them? I mean, yeah. So he sings in the finale because he's a character in the musical singing and it's the finale of the show. But then they break the fourth wall a bit and the producer's like, wait, you got a great voice. You're going to star in this musical. And then he's like, great, we're going to do this musical together. That's the name of the finale. Yeah. Totally throwing out the fact that for two and a half hours, he just wanted to do a serious play about basketball. Now he's going to star in the musical he didn't want to be involved with. Well, and I think they tried to justify it earlier in Act 2. There's a song called You Gotta Have Dancing. And the stage manager character, Mm -hmm. who is a young female, um, and it seems like they're alluding to some sort of romance between the two of them, but never actually get there. Um, she's like, no, in a musical, you gotta dance. And so she sings this really fun, quirky number that actually reminds me of Dancing All the Time from Big. Okay. Yeah. Um, Wheels are turning in my head. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So she sings this to him and like tries to teach him how to dance. But he doesn't sing in that song at all. (laughs) Like he's not a part of it. So it's it's really uh, quite confusing in in the sense that, like, I think I'm supposed to want James to win. Right. And I'm watching Richie be very st- stereotypical. I'm a star already. Um, give me what I want. I'm I'm the reason you, you even have a show kind of feeling, well, right? So pause for a second. I tried to look and I couldn't find it. And I don't know. On Golden Boy, I mean, was Sammy Davis, did he have kind of a diva air about the production? I didn't find anything about that either. I looked because I, I I assumed diving into this project because, like you said, this character very much. It, I mean, there's this running gag in the show. I think a lot of just the concepts might be good ideas that just don't work. One of the concepts for the Richie character is that he has this song in the show called "Let Me Sing This Song." Yeah, and, and he it's never finishes kind of pretty. it. Pretty, yeah, and it never finishes because he's just over the top and. What's funny is I feel like none of these songs actually finish. Yeah. They start out great and have these moments of growth. 
and then they don't go anywhere. Right. Which is interesting because Charles Strauss is a genius when it comes to structure. I mean, we've seen that. You've got Annie, even Annie too. Say what you want. Structurally, that show makes complete sense. And the songs make complete sense. Same with Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. Bye Bye Birdie too. You know, bring back Birdie. So he he knows structure. But right. for some reason, the music in this show and these songs don't really have a proper beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, the score is so fascinating as a Charles Strauss fan because it really is a... a I don't want to say hodgepodge because it's not that. It's like a, a potpourri of Charles Strauss moments from other shows, you know, listening to it. Um, and I listened to like, just like you, there was a live recording from previews that we were fortunate enough to have uh, and listen to. And then there was some concert footage and things like that on YouTube. I hear a little Annie. I hear a little Bye Bye Birdie at points. Um, I hear a little applause. I actually hear a lot of applause in the score. Well, didn't they rip an entire song from applause and throw it into this? <laughs> Smashing New York Times, which yes. I love the song. I actually like the song in this show more than I like the version that's in applause. Interesting. There you go. I think. I think. I like the duet version because uh, that's the fourth character we didn't even really, or fifth character we didn't even mention is the producer's wife. Right. So... Who's not mentioned anywhere on like Wikipedia or anything. Nowhere. She's a big character in this she show. She is a big character. But what's interesting about it is like, again, we think that James is supposed to be our hero or at least his relationship with Eddie is really supposed to be our main focus. Right. But if you look at the way the song, uh, the show is structured, especially with its song structure, the through line is actually the relationship between Eddie and his wife. Right. And their relationship actually has a full beginning, middle, and end. And a proper four-act structure. But it's the only thing in the show that does. Right. Well, it, the the I Want song is their first duet in Act One. Yep. Like, um, And it's I Want to Be Home With You and Be Your Husband. Yes. And then they resolve that later on with Smashing New York Times. Yep. Where it's... Which is a wonderful song. It's probably, I think, the best constructed as a whole song in the entire yeah. piece. Probably because it was written for another show. Um, but it is this idea that as a theater professional, you want to hear these quotes from the New York Times that your show is smashing. You're incredible from this one. And it's this and that from all the major publications. But at the end of the day, all he wants is his wife to say, Eddie, I love you. That's... Right. And it just all feels contradictory to what the musical is actually about. Yeah. And like, there's also that I don't really quite understand how this song comes into the show. It's kind of funny. And it's called Yenta Power. Yenta Power is a thing, ladies and gentlemen. It is. And it has like the seeds of being a really funny patter song. Like, to me, I was listening to it and I was like, is this where Jason Robert Brown got the inspiration for Just One Step? Oh. Because <laughs> it feels very similar. Well, you know the connection we've mentioned on a previous episode. Jason Robert Brown was the arranger of the Charles Strauss Star Wars musical that was right. also being written in the years following this. So, Man, Charles Strauss just really ran the gambit <laughs> on genre. Big paintbrush everywhere. <laughs> I mean, and like I said, we're about to jump in because there are so many Charles Strauss shows that we can, like from the Flowers for Algernon musical, Christina. Oh, right. I don't even know if you're ready for that. As much as the show was about their kind of 
experience working on Golden Boy was also in response. I think you mentioned this to a chorus line being one of the biggest hits on Broadway. They felt backstage musicals were in. And William F. Brown, having written the book to The Wiz, to say this as true to the time period and to preface Black musicals were very popular on Broadway in the 1970s. You had famously Hello, Dolly closed and reopened with a completely African-American cast, which was groundbreaking at the time. Uh, and then you also got the all African-American Guys and Dolls in the 1970s, which hashtag, by the way, if you've never listened to that cast recording, if you've seen Ken Page do Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, like at 54 Below or at the Hollywood Bowl, it's good, but he does the normal version usually in those concerts. The version, the gospel version he does in the 1970s cast recording with the all African-American cast will blow your mind. I need to listen to that. Oh, the whole, the whole like revision of the show is magical. And then, of course, The Wiz is one of the biggest hits and becomes one of the biggest, I think, cultural milestones for, I think, African-Americans in the theater because... The Wizard of Oz, what they did with The Wiz is so fascinating because The Wizard of Oz is one of America's true fairy tales. You know, you yeah. look at the classic fairy tales in the world, Cinderella, Snow White, a lot of them are European or in various cultures around the world. But when it comes to American, and I say American as United States of America. Yes. We're like, because there were people who lived in the Americas before the Europeans came and yep. they had lots of fairy tales, I'm sure, that we have not told those stories. But The Wizard of Oz is a uniquely American USA fairy tale. Yes. And every time it's done, it's a very Caucasian telling of it because America. Uh, and what The Wiz did is it reclaimed that because America is a melting pot of many different cultures. And something like The Wizard of Oz shouldn't just be Harold Arlen, you know, and Judy no, Garland. I agree. And every little girl, no matter where they come from, no matter what they look like, should be able to see themselves in Dorothy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. The Wiz gave a whole other group of girls the ability to see themselves. This they, was felt by the team. This was a, I think, to their detriment, because instead of coming from it from, I think, an empowering place, I think they the just the creation of the project was almost as a gimmick. Backstage musicals are in. African-American musicals are in. You know what I mean? Which contradicts the commentary that they were trying to right. make. In a weird way, I'm happy that this flopped. Right. For those reasons. Right? Let's not perpetuate that kind of stereotyping and marginalizing. But let's talk about what did work. And the positives. It's got a it it does have a, a great score that I think maybe is one or two drafts away from being truly fantastic, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the songs that structurally doesn't need to be in the show, but is definitely the best song in the show, is the Hot Chocolate Jazz Babies review, which is Richie, the singer, is reminiscing back to when he used to do these incredible vaudeville reviews on Broadway back in the 30s. And so he's reminiscing about it and it turns into a true Gower champion. Let me show you all the Broadway dancing and this amazing vocalization. Thing. Wait, are you sure it's Richie? I think it's just some random janitor. 
I think it's Oh, a, I thought it was Richie. No, I think because I was reading the New York Times review. I think it's a random character. And that was they were like the best person in the show. How interesting. Literally does nothing else but this song. The concert version at 54 Below, which is on YouTube if you want to go check it out. Right. Um, at 54 Below actually has Richie ah. singing it and him saying, I used to be the star of those musicals. So maybe that was something they added for the concert to make it make a little more sense okay. and give it a reason to be there because it certainly does. Um, interesting. That's so interesting. But there's this incredible jazz scatting duet like uh -huh. back and forth. I don't know how much of it is improv and how much of it is written in the, in the sheet music. But in the 54 Below concert, that was the best part of the whole thing. Oh, was yeah. listening to these two ladies wail. I mean, they were incredible. Absolutely incredible. And in the original cast, it was Loretta Devine. And Jack A. Jack A! <laughs> who, if you've ever seen, which I hope you all have, the TV show Sister, Sister. If you have it, then you have some serious, serious binging to do. Serious binging. Jack A plays the mom. And yeah. she was also on 227, legendary sitcom. Uh, but this was, a, I mean, I had known she had started on Broadway, uh, but I didn't, for some reason, didn't know she was a singer, but like, fierce. Oh, yes. Fierce. I mean, Loretta Devine is like, God, like, yeah, come on. Yeah, it's Loretta Devine. I mean, but Loretta Devine in the ensemble in this, I think Jack A had a featured, I mean, she has a character name in the yeah, cast list. right. But they are totally doing their business on this audio. And it is so fierce. It is. It's really incredible. Um, but that, to me, was like the best part of the show. And I was like, maybe we should do that as the show. Like, right. maybe we should really take it back to the 1930s and let's do the hot, hot chocolate jazz babies well, review. Let's well, do that. <laughs> well, that's and that's when the score reminded me of Rags. I mean, mm. because I think Rags is one of his most complex scores. Yeah. And it in ties in so much of that uh ragtime music and really classical orchestral Broadway music. You don't hear that in Annie and by, by Birdie. But this one is so great because it it starts with that moment with uh the character, either the janitor or Richie, depending on the version you uh are watching or listening to. And then it opens up almost like follies, where the stage turns around and you get to see the review and yeah. you get to see these beautiful costumes and Gower Champion's choreography and these amazing performers. And the music is so incredibly complex, more complex than anything that's in the rest of the show. Oh, completely. I mean, the rest of the show feels rudimentary mm -hmm. comparatively. Um, and since we brought up Gower Champion, we should probably discuss the evolution of how we got to this with Gower Champion being a yes. part of the show. So it has several important, significant productions. It started out at Riverside Church in Morningstar Heights in the same year, 1978. So that's where they did their first, like, this is the show. Give us your money. Here it is. Which I think is so fun because, you know, Chorus Line had pioneered the workshop. And so Broadway was embracing it. But this is 1978. It's still early in this. So they don't really know what's a workshop yet. Right. So they do it at the River. Have you ever been to the Riverside Church Theater? No, but now I want to. Oh, well, we have the next time we're in New York together. It is so gorgeous. And it makes me sad that they don't do musicals all the time there. We have Riverside Church where they do their in quotes out of town preview. It really it's in town. Um, and then it went to Broadway. Now, between those two things, 
there was a black director. George Faison. George Faison for when they did the production at Riverside Church. Right. Then something happens, and I don't know what it is, but something happens and there is a change and he is replaced with Gower Champion. Yes. But then by the time we get to opening night, Gower Champion turns around and says, take my name off. You can put me down as consulted. Which is insane because all the reviews are like Gower Champion's choreography. I mean, well, I and know. I tried to figure out like what that was. Everyone just kept saying creative differences. So I also found um, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. She did this series. Uh, I think it's still happening in New York. No, uh, she she brings it back. So, I mean, she's got right. fancy jobs now, but her if it only even runs a minute series, which right. is makes me so sad. I didn't do it first. <laughs> it what launched her into her super fancy job at 54 below yeah yeah anyway. um, and she's incredible so if you don't know her go look her up say hi for us but she did a one of her shows on a broadway musical and in that she gave a little tidbit that apparently the disagreements between Gower champion and the creative team was that he thought that the show needed to focus less on the racial issues and more on the white producer storyline and make it really glitzy. Right. Ironically, I feel like that is what happened. I am so sad that I didn't have more material for us to listen to on this because there are quite a few cut songs that I at least found song titles to. And some of them, you know, just even looking at them like I've been in those shoes or be like a ba basketball and bounce right That's back. That's my favorite title. I mean, <laughs> it makes me it makes me wonder, was there a big change in the plot? Was it about James or was it and then they made it more about Eddie? Like, did there sure. become a shift during the creative process? Because we have an audio from previews on Broadway. So I, we don't me and Christina don't even know exactly what the show ran and sound like at the Riverside Church or even while they were writing it. Um, and we then have the concert at 54 Below, which, to the best of my knowledge, resembles what they did on opening night. Slash That's closing my night. understanding. <laughs> slash closing night. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Let's move on to current events in 1978. So 1978, we're coming out of the civil rights movement, right? It's been a few years at this point. But there's still a lot of racial divide and a lot of change happening because we've seen it even now in 2021 where there is a lot of systemic problems right. that don't just go away because you say so. No. And we had a very interesting Supreme Court ruling. So at UC Davis, there was a white Marine who had applied for their medical program. Um, a couple of times and been denied. Now, he was in his 30s and was basically told he was too old to enter the program, which in it of itself is ageism. Right. right. So he so he decides to sue UC Davis because he's like, they're not letting me in because of affirmative action. There were students of color who applied who had lower test scores than me that were admitted and I was not. So therefore, I'm going to sue. This got taken all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that um, affirmative action was actually unconstitutional. 
Now, affirmative action, there's a lot of feelings and opinions around that phrase and what it means. And, you know, there's good and bad with all of it. So, okay, affirmative action is unconstitutional. Fine. But then they also ruled that a um, educational system could admit someone based on their race. They can take race as a factor into admission. Oh, wow. Which can go one of two ways, positively for those who are marginalized or negatively. And ultimately, they said, UC Davis, you were wrong. And they admitted the white Marine into the medical program. And it's a very interesting parallel to our show that we're speaking about tonight in the sense that affirmative action was a great intention, you know, and was there to give more opportunity or attempt to give more opportunity um, and to make up for the injustices of the past. But then it always comes back to this, well, were you actually good enough? Right. Which is upsetting and unacceptable. And the fact that we as a society even exploit that is a problem. Absolutely. And so it was just a very interesting thing that this Alan Bake, I think is how you pronounce his name. That's the Marine that uh, sued UC Davis. It's very interesting that this lawsuit that ultimately went to the Supreme Court and, and affected the nation was happening at the same time as this musical that was trying to exploit a black story. Right. And utilize the American black experience for their own game. It's just it's a very interesting parallel that I thought was relevant to bring up. No, absolutely. And it's something, sadly, that I think not. I think I I know the needle hasn't moved much, if at all, from 1978 to 2021. Like we are we are still in the same place, if not in some ways, probably worse off than we were back then. We take advantage of the fact that the theater, in comparative to other industries and whatever, has this air of being very liberal and very opening. And it's and it's a place where people of all types and backgrounds can come and, and uh, you know, work and live and succeed in harmony. But at the end of the day, the industry is still in 2021, very straight, very white, very male. And, you know, obviously, Christina and I are both. Caucasian ourselves. Yes. Um, and we recognize our privilege. Absolutely. But Christina, as a woman and me as a gay man, can at least not, there's no comparison, but at least from our own point of views, something that really doesn't get me upset, but really hits me in an interesting way is when people will just be like, well, you know, the gays are all in the theater. I'm like, but how many people? in power are actually members of the LGB community. Because if I start listing off some of the quote-unquote legendary Broadway directors and choreographers, I still see a lot of straight men. And Mm -hmm. when I start looking at the Tony winners, even though you do find members of the LGBT community who've won, unlike the Oscars, it is still very much straight people. You know, well, I mean, even to bring it back to a Broadway musical, right? We had white straight men producing this, ironically, from Canada, right? You know, (laughs) which is also fine, but like it's 
I mean, it's it is that again, I'm going to just come back to it. It's systemic problems. Right. Right. This is the way it's always been done. These are the people with the money. So this is a story that's being told. And I really hope that we continue to see those who have been pushed aside come out and tell their truth. Absolutely. We, I mean... There was, you know, speaking of things that happened over the pandemic, another big moment that I'm hoping didn't fall on deaf ears. I'm hoping that people will continue to let this uh, ignite as things beginning to to open up again is when Griffin Matthews went on social media last year. Um, And Griffin Matthews was one of the writers and star of Invisible Thread, a.k.a. Witness Uganda. Um, And he went on this social media post. um, Right. And so Amy Cooper was this woman in Central Park who called the cops on a bird watcher, (laughs) a bird watcher who happened to be African-American. And when everything was said and down, it, it turned out that Amy Cooper was supposedly liberal supposedly members of like big uh, liberal causes and things like that. But at the end of the day, she had a racist mindset. Yeah. And so in his posts on social media, he compares his experience working on the show with white producers and with a white director and with white creatives surrounding him being told how to tell his stories based on his real life experience and to how his play had to be produced, how the people in the show uh, had to do certain things. They couldn't be a certain skin color. Right. They were too dark to be Ugandan. That was a comment that was floated in the casting room. The cast was too old to play their ages. They looked too old, even though they were the appropriate ages. Right. But yet, at the same time, you had Dear Evan Hansen being produced. At the same organization. At the same organization. We don't even need to get into the fact. We don't. I mean, I think that looks fifty in the trailer. So, (laughs) look. At the end of the day, it just shows the privilege. It shows white privilege. You have a white show that doesn't get any of those caveats, and then you have a black show that gets roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And I won't say it's the moral of the story, but it's one of the things that I think all of us in this industry, no matter what background we come from, we have to moving forward is it's it's not enough to just tell stories of marginalized people and to give opportunities to marginalized performers. It is truly an industry wide thing. We need we need marginalized people in roles of power. We need directors, choreographers, producers, writers, casting directors. Uh, costumers we need you know uh, people who work wigs and makeup they can't we can't the industry is very caucasian yes it is very caucasian and even when you you watch the revival of color purple it's directed by john doyle like and as brilliant as that is are you really telling me that there's nobody else who could have helmed that revival i mean especially an african-american woman like the story is about empowering not a a queer african-american woman like John Doyle. That's and it was a brilliant production. I mean, listen, Broadway has issues. And look, there is a character on Broadway who is painted green and is still played by a Caucasian actress 99.9% of the time. Yes. She's literally spray painted green. It could be anyone. But yet, 
It's also a fictional place. So it everybody in that show. Look, could this be is anyone. why I love sci-fi. It's why I love high fantasy is because the sky's the limit. You can make any choice you want. And if you do not embrace that, you are letting yourself down as an artist yeah. and you're letting the world down because we get to affect change. We get to affect a conversation. Right. That's what art does. It holds a mirror up to the audience and says, hey, look at yourself today. Right. Look at what we're talking about. And that could be in a comedy. That could be in a fluffy musical. You still get to affect change. I mean, one of the most, I think, effective moments I've ever seen in a Broadway show is Next to Normal, which mm -hmm. is as much as it being a very serious musical, it is a comedy. I mean, Alice Ripley at her best in that show, and I know she did it for a long time. I saw it on Broadway early in the run, and it was transcending because her comedic moments between her and the doctors and even the, the husband, you know what I mean? That show only works because the comedy is, I mean, that's why it won the Pulitzer Prize. Right. Is if that had been a strictly like slit your wrist, serious musical, you should see the face that Christina just made. No, it works because of Alice's like her quips and her like just demeanor. It works with you. I, it just it works because of the comedy. It works because it's a musical comedy because it allows us to process the complexities, which is the mental health situation in America. It, 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 even if we're briefly touching on it, you know, and that's what musical theater should be doing. We should be talking about difficult subjects and voices that are different and varied. And we should be telling stories that are new and, and unheard. Right. We should be doing that in a safe space that is already heightened because, well, usually people don't just break into song. <laughs> right. Broadway should be a safe space for everyone with a million different voices telling a million different stories. And to bring it back to a Broadway, a Broadway musical. musical, they had the opportunity with the kernel and the seed of the idea of this show. Right. They had the opportunity. Unfortunately, they weren't able to rise to the occasion. But what I do hope is that we get someone like Griffith Matthews, who is a playwright and an actor, who could maybe find another way in to having this conversation on stage. Well, that's our act two opener, everybody. Our act two opener, all about a Broadway musical named A Broadway Musical. A Broadway Musical. Thank you so much for joining us after intermission, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you enjoyed the break, but act two has begun. And let me tell you, we are throwing out all the rules, right? Yep. Out the window. Out the window. So it's the My Favorite Flop you love, but... With some extras. So Sorry. many extras. Oh my goodness. We're changing everything. The podcast is changing. Our social media is changing a little bit. And After the Bows is also going to change. Uh, right. So stay tuned to hear about how we're going to change things up. Speaking of which, Bobby, why don't you go ahead and give them their first clue for the next episode? Right. That kind of... I think that's going to help set it up. So, so, clue number one for episode 14, ladies and gentlemen is this. Both of these musicals are based on Academy Award nominated foreign films. Bum, bum, bum! There are two of them. That's right. 
our next episode, we will be covering two musicals and it's only going to get crazier from there. So crazy. (laughs) So be sure to check everything out. Please leave us a five-star review if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wherever you listen to them, but Apple's probably the best. And then come join us on our socials. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the Tickety Talks. The Tickety Talks. we get some silly stories. Hashtag ping pong. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're so glad to be back. Thank you so much. Um, like Christina said, make sure to follow us on social. And Christina, do you have any parting words for our guests today? Unlike Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, we're coming back with two shows. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>